when we are weak, when we are in at our weakest, that we're down in an area of shame, despair, hopelessness, anger, fear, resentment. And when we're in that mindset right. of, of that place, we're in what I refer to as the swamp. And that's a powerless place because it deprives us of all of our energy. So when I'm in those negative thoughts, perceptions, feelings, negative actions, they're contributing to depleting me of my power and my strength. So what happened with me personally is with my alcoholism and drinking and being in this negative, you know, angry, resentful, based on trauma and negative circumstances and despair and hopelessness, and I'm living in this swamp, then I, it's, the alcohol is just taking me further and further and further into powerlessness, mm -hmm. right? Because it takes over everything. So then recovery, in my opinion, is this um, path to going from powerless to powerful. Hi there, I'm Dr. KJ Foster. Welcome to Fostering Resilience. What is Fostering Resilience? Fostering Resilience is a program that provides resources and educational materials like this YouTube channel, online courses and workshops that are dedicated to supporting the recovery community, individuals and family members who are seeking to grow stronger, gain resilience and overcome issues like anger, anxiety, addiction, codependency and other self-limiting beliefs and behaviors. And my channel, my YouTube channel is dedicated to providing, I provide recovery stories. So individuals and family members share their recovery stories, also educational videos and meditation videos. I also conduct daily recovery support meetings that are absolutely free and they are based on the Fostering Resilience Program, which is all about compassion focused therapy. So it's all about cultural cultivating compassion for self and compassion for others. So if you're interested in learning more about those daily recovery meetings that are absolutely free, then there's a link in the description to those meetings as well. They're every single day, different times during the day, Eastern Standard Time. But if you click on the link, it will take you to the registration page and you can go ahead and sign up for those free meetings. Why sober is dope, why not? Why not? Why not be great? Why not set an example? You sober curious, come on board. If you struggling, don't be afraid. Fear's not an option. We want transformation, we want people to live. If you sober minded, then you're clear headed. You're closer to the source, you're closer to the all, you're closer to a higher vibration. Why sober is dope? Because sobriety is life. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's no depression. There's no running from your problems. It's facing your fears. Facing everything. No doubt. No going backwards. It's upward mobility. We moving forward. Let's time the man up. Okay? It's time the man up. Why sober is dope? Because sobriety is. It's the original panacea. You want to be healthy, you want to become a millionaire, you want to live your best life, and sometimes we have to make sacrifices. Everyone could talk a good game, but not many of us is willing to make a sacrifice. If you're struggling out there, 
don't be afraid. If you if you drugged out, there's hope. If you can't put that bottle down for some reason, it's hope. Why sober is dope? Because it is. It's life. And we promote life. We promote transformation and new beginnings. Yeah, let's get it. Dr. J.K. Foster, Ph.D., is a mental health expert, author, educator, entrepreneur, speaker, and YouTube creator. Dr. Foster celebrated 12 years clean and sober on July 20th, 2020. Dr. Foster, after finding her recovery, went back to school and became a licensed mental health counselor, a certified addiction professional, a specialist in relapse prevention, earned a doctorate in counselor education, and created Fostering Resilience. Fostering Resilience provides programs and resources designed by Dr. K.J. Foster to help individuals and their family members overcome anger, anxiety, addiction, substance abuse, codependency, and other self-limiting beliefs and behaviors. In Dr. K.J. Foster's own words, recovery changes everything. The Foster and Resilience program and materials are all based in compassion-focused therapy and relapse prevention techniques. It includes Dr. K.J. Foster's books, this YouTube channel, free recovery support meetings for individuals and their families, and online courses and workshops. Ladies and gentlemen, I am very excited to bring you Dr. K.J. Foster. She is a remarkable force in the recovery community, and fostering resilience really helps us stay rooted in compassion for ourselves and our recovery and for others as they embark on their journey of recovery and their own personal struggles with addiction. I'm so excited for you guys to hear our great talk and I'm going to bring you guys in. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation with our friend, Dr. KJ Foster. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan, and I'm extremely excited to have Dr. K.J. Forster on with us today. Dr. Forster is instrumental in the recovery community. She has multiple programs and a beautiful platform that enables healing and recovery. So, Doc, thank you for having us here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Really happy to be here, Pop. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. So, Doc, a few things we have in common, and I really, I really thought this was cool. One, we're, I'm a New Yorker, right? You're, yeah, you are, yes, yes, great. So, I am. All right. And the second thing was, you was born in um, Long Island. I went to college in Long Island. So, you did. Where yes, did you go? The State University of Farmingdale. So oh, okay. I'm a Farmingdale grad. I got an associate's and my bachelor's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a beautiful story because my uh, that leads into our next thing. I'm ca- I come from a Catholic family background, mm-hmm. and you also do too. Yes, I do. And mm-hmm. that's why I was attracted to Farmingdale because the di- I'm from Brooklyn, and the Diocese of Brooklyn, the Catholic Diocese extends to Long Island, and most people mm-hmm. didn't know that, right? Mm-hmm. And my dad was buried in Farmingdale State. I mean, um, he was in St. Charles Cemetery in Farmingdale. 
So when I had a choice to pick colleges, I could have went to any school I wanted, but I said, I want to go to Farmingdale. I want to be close to my dad. And mm -hmm. that's how I wound up going to the State University of Farmingdale. There was a great story there. Um, so the next thing that we have in common is college for us was somewhat of a blur in some <laughs> cases, right? And we'll get, and we'll get into blur. that. A big blur, right? <laughs> we'll get into that. And the next thing is um, part of our um, catalyst or part of our change from maybe being functional to uh, dependent was kind of heartbreak and some form of issues there. And I think it's a, it's a, it may be a small issue for but some people, but for most of us, that could be the one thing that makes us go over the edge, right? right. And you talked about that. Briefly, before we get into your amazing story and everything, can you just tell our audience a brief overview of who you are and what you're bringing to the community? Oh my gosh. Well, I, um, my name is KJ Foster. Like you said, I am the founder and CEO of Fostering Resilience. Yes, a pun is absolutely intended. And <laughs> that company produces online programs for individuals, family members, students, counselors, anyone who's interested in learning more about substance use disorder, addiction, codependency, and the issues relative to that. I'm also the family program director for a very small treatment center in Delray Beach, Florida, residential treatment center. It's one of the oldest treatment centers in the state. It's called the Beachcomber Family Center for Alcoholism and Addiction Recovery. And I also have a private practice in Boca Raton, Florida, so I stay very busy and yes. I have, you know, I'm actively involved in a program of recovery myself. Well, well, one, um, thank you for everything. You're doing a lot. And um, it, it, you know what, when we're in recovery, we have to find ways to give back. And you know that from coming from your background and service is the most important thing. And I think a lot of the aspects of your programs are tied to service and really paying it forward to the next generation. Uh, I wanted to talk to you. You have a daily recovery support meetings. You do this daily, right? Every single day. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And is that free to the public where people absolutely can just... free? Wow. That's incredible. And how long does it last? So where can people find that? They can find it on my website. If you go to www.frprogram.com or drdrkjfoster.org, either website, you'll find the free recovery, the link to the free recovery support meetings. They're on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Mondays, I always mess this up, Mondays and Wednesdays and Sundays, they're at four o'clock. And then Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, they're at one o'clock. And Saturday is the only day they're at 6 p.m., all Eastern Standard Time. That's beautiful. I have to, you know, stop in one day and, and participate. So, Doc, you make an amazing distinction. You try to let people sometimes, because you cover a lot of really scientific material. You cover a lot of issues in trauma and just the brain and healing. And you like to let people know that you're not a neuroscientist, right? right? But you are a doctor and specifically in education and counseling. Can you tell us a little right. bit about that? Sure. My PhD is in counselor education. So I consider myself overall on, in the umbrella, so to speak, of everything that I do to be an educator. Great. I'm all about 
educating people. And I think that even as a counselor and what I do in treatment and everything that I do really is about awareness. Even when you think about therapy, therapy is all about bringing the subconscious conscious, you know, yes. having an awareness because no change can occur unless we first have the awareness that something needs to change. Absolutely. So, so much of the process is about education. So that I'm big on education. And, and I also, even though I'm not trained in neuro-linguistic programming, I, I'm very, um, very much a believer in the process and in the way in which we speak to ourselves, the way in which we speak to other people, and also addiction as a brain disease, you know, yes. something that we have, um, you know, people injure their brain uh, over time, the, the bombardment of the alcohol and or the drugs and the impact that, that it has on the brain and understanding that it's a, a mental illness and a brain disorder that takes a significant amount of time to heal. Yes. And I think that that is a, the big, a big piece of it is that so many people think that they can just recover like that or go to detox or 28 days of treatment and they're done and they're cured or they're okay to go. And it, it's a long rehabilitation process. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that, right? Yes. They don't want to talk about just how long it takes to recover. But I'm somebody, I remember when in the, you know, early days of my career, so to speak, uh, at about two years sober, when I changed careers and went back to school and um, decided that this is what I wanted to do for a living, I remember people saying to me, KJ, you can't tell people how long it takes. And I was like, why? Well, you'll scare them if they know really how long it takes to recover. I'm like, but people need to know so that they're not, you know, they're not expecting that this is just this quick process that yeah. happens, you know, overnight or after seven days or 28 days. So. Well, thank you. And, you know, I think the problem there and one with the Soap is Dope podcast definitely uh, adheres to addiction being a brain disease, especially alcoholism is really strong there. We are definitely friends at NLP. Um, and we have something in common. You recently interviewed our good friend, Dr. Rob Kelly, right? Yeah. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Rob okay. Kelly is the same way. We had a great conversation. And I think, I think doc, the thing is most people in, um, so traditional recovery, you know, whether it's 12 step related or, you know, the, the in um, detox rehab, it, it doesn't always connect the mental health aspect. Right. Mm -hmm. So on our podcast, we cover topics like comorbidity, where we talk about the relationship or the dual diagnosis that usually accompanies an addiction and the mental health aspect, uh, depression, anxiety, and that leads to trauma. That leads me to talking about trauma, the biggest theme of our podcast. And in general, I guess in my personal healing is addressing trauma, especially trauma to the brain. When mm -hmm. we're the, the cumulative effects of the negative cumulative effect of alcohol and drugs on your brain day after day, malnutrition, lack of sleep patterns, it throws us off. It creates this trauma environment. And that's where you're, well, that's what you're talking about when you say for the average person, it's going to take a significant amount of time, right? It's not going to happen overnight. We know that. Right. And we have that honeymoon effect uh, where, you know, you get, you get sober, you feel like, oh, I'm excited. The whole world, I could do anything. I'm good. I don't need anything. 
and that eventually wears off. And then you go to a next, the protracted state of recovery is where right. people tend to be like, oh man, my brain hurts. I'm tired. I don't know why I feel so depressed because they're starting to feel the effects of dopamine in their brains and stuff like that. Post-acute withdrawal. Yeah. Yes. And then you're exactly. So could we talk about that withdrawal phase? And you talked about a lot of that in your program and your experience with the treatment aspect and that time frame. What in recovery? Sure, sure. So, so most people are familiar with the acute phase of withdrawal, which when you become chemically dependent, you know, that's what your body goes through. It goes through this physical withdrawal. And it's actually what keeps people addicted for, for a longer period of time because they're avoiding, especially with opiate users, you know, they're avoiding that uncomfortable withdrawal feeling. So they continue to, to then chase the drug. But post-acute withdrawal kicks in at about two weeks. And depending, of course, you know, it all depends upon duration, types of drugs, you know, quantity, all the lots of different factors. But generally speaking, at about two weeks, and that's the process of your brain healing, mm -hmm. the the injury, you know, the that that has impacted the brain. And the brain take this is what takes a long time to heal. And it's not like you are going to be experiencing post-acute withdrawals for two years straight. It's just, it's going to come and go. As your brain heals, chemicals are released that are attempting to bring the brain back into equilibrium. And so as the brain releases these chemicals, then the symptoms, you know, the irritability, the, the stress sensitivity, cognitive memory issues, will come and go. I can tell you for me, I struggled with cognitive issues for at least nine months of my recovery where I would read something and I would read a paragraph and after I read it, I couldn't even tell you what I just read. I couldn't even remember it. I would, I would forget names, insomnia, sleep disturbance. And so what will happen is the these symptoms will appear out of nowhere. You'll be feeling great. You're on the, the pink cloud that you described yeah. or what we call the flight into health. You know, that is, that is a form of denial actually, because I, I experienced it the very first time I attempted to get sober. I was actually one of these people that thought AA was the greatest place on earth. Yeah. <laughs> I went there and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I've never heard of this organization where everybody that belongs to the organization is committed to not drinking. This is wonderful. I'm never going to drink again. Right. And then reality hits. I start experiencing the post-acute withdrawals and you know that resulted in relapse. And so there's this, um, there's this misconception that I'm never going to drink again. I feel great. Everything's wonderful. And then reality hits. Yes. And you run it, you know, you run into difficulty or you're experiencing the uncomfortability and it's the ability to be able to move through that uncomfortability without relapsing. Correct. And that comes and goes for a period on average of 18 months to two years, if not longer if not for longer. some people, depending upon the variety, the quantity, the all of those things all come into play. Things. Yes. But and, I would say yeah. that 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 for most people that that no one really gets to that place of a strong recovery until they're at least at a year to a year and a half correct where that flip takes place right correct. that flip from being totally you know the the addiction is the the 
has complete control. Yes. Right. Complete control of your mind, your emotions, your body. And, and you need to gain the, the strength back of your true self. And that takes a long time for that flip to happen where you then can be in environments and go places and not be at risk for relapse. And this is where like the neuro pathways come into play Okay. and, and how the neuro pathways are carved in our brain through drinking with people at places. Yes. And then we go back to those places, go hang out with those people. We think we're committed. I'm committed to my recovery. I don't want to drink. I don't want to drug. I, you know, I, I feel strong, but I go back and I hang out with these people or I go back to this place in early recovery. And because the neural pathways in my brain are so deep, a chemical release happens. And then I have this craving that becomes overpowering and I want to drink, even though I just committed to myself that I wasn't going to. Does that make yeah, sense? It makes perfect sense because um, we, we know it takes time for a behavior to become permanent. And we know that we have, they call it malian sheep, somalian in your brain, right? These grooves create permanent yes. well, behavior patterns. So, mm -hmm. you know, you get so, but I'll tell a real good story for the audience so they get a good picture. One of my worst relapses, which was heartbreaking for me because I really lost the respect of the girl I was with at the time. And that, and later on, I think it became a, it, it went, it was snowballed into us eventually separating, which that led to a deeper part of my addiction. But I was doing so well. I looked so good. I felt so good. I remember I was in my twenties and this was like going on my fifth or sixth month, but I was doing everything on my own. It was no AA. It was like, I just kind of just stopped. I got, you know, I got it out of my system, the alcohol, that's my drug of choice. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to this party and this party was important. It was with one of my friends who was really famous and kind of popular. So the people at her party was really influential. And I was just, you know, I was overwhelmed. Everyone was comfortable. I, I couldn't seem to really get over the nervousness and I just felt so out of place. I couldn't talk. I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. I didn't belong in this environment. Me looking back, I should have just left. But what I did was I stayed outside long enough. I kept chain smoking. I kept trying to communicate with people. Then something said, well, don't go get a drink, go around the corner and find a beer. So I was in Chinatown. It was this par party in Chinatown. So I went and bought two 40 ounces, right? And I'm drinking them, I'm drinking them. And then my personality just totally shifted. I'm talking to everyone. I'm the life of the party. Everything is fantastic. Everyone is like, this kid is awesome. But then I get back home and I broke that beautiful bond I had with my girlfriend, but also myself, because when she saw me, she just totally started crying and said, what happened? And I just said, I don't know. And that's the, and then that led to, the look on her face just led to a long bend, right? Because I was disappointed. Then I felt helpless because I didn't know exactly what to do at this point. I felt like, well, I'm never going to get this thing under control. What I didn't know at the time was that it was so much that goes into healing, treatment, you know, de detox, having some form of rehabilitation plan, making sure you might need medication. If you do need to get those vital neurotransmitter chemicals or hormones you were talking about to a healthy level. So this is something that I want to sit with for a bit with you, the, the importance of giving yourself time in recovery. And 
and not beating yourself up when you necessarily have a relapse, right? Because right. that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. But getting back on the wagon kind of faster right. than, you know, just giving, throwing it in the towel. Well, and what I'd like to, to just throw out there is the fact that what I truly specialize in, Pop, yeah. is working with people like your ex-girlfriend. Beautiful. I work, I work with the loved ones. I work with the family members because I've experienced it from both sides. I have a son yes. who was addicted to heroin and he is now successfully recovered. Oh, and, and he, thank you. And that is a big part of, of my story. But that experience of going through addiction myself and then being the family member of somebody going through addiction and what I learned, how I needed to change to in order to help support his recovery and learn the things that I was doing that were contributing to his relapses. And as loved ones, as family members, we don't know how, you know, like your, your ex-girlfriend probably had no idea that her reaction to your relapse contributed even more to your guilt and shame and probably prolonged the amount of time that you went out and you were using because of that reaction and that response. Addiction is one of the only illnesses out there where we treat people who have it with condemnation and contempt instead of love and compassion and recognizing that how they are truly suffering you know, the loved ones, because they're suffering themselves, right? They can't, it's very difficult for them to get out of their own suffering and be able to see the suffering of their loved one and see them as someone who is, who is sick. And, and so I help family members to gain awareness of that and help them to change their behavior so that they can be in a better position to provide that compassion and that love and that support. And that doesn't mean that they're enabling their love. Correct. Correct. It's there, a difference. It, there's difference. a difference. And, and people think tough love, right? right? People think this concept of tough love yeah. is that you have to be tough with your loved one. You have to be, you know, if you lay down the law and you have to be you know, strict and, and even angry. And, and that's not tough love at all. What tough love is, is making those tough decisions with your loved one with love and compassion and allowing them to be unhappy with you and even potentially hate you in the moment for what you're, for the boundary that you're drawing with them. But you always, always, always do it with love and compassion, not with anger and resentment. And that's, yes, and that could be a quite a challenge for um, someone who, I, I know it, it's tough for families, right? It's, it's kind of one of those sensitive subjects. I like that, fostering resilience. You're helping people become more resilient to the up and down and the tornado of addiction, right? Mm-hmm. I love that. That's very powerful. Um, you, Your case was really, I felt, I have a, a warm heart to your situation. When you found your sobriety, it was... You was going through your own avalanche of issues, right? And we could go into a whole, that's a whole nother podcast because one, I want to commend you because where you came from, you did a lot of work, right? In these 12 years period, it's amazing. Yeah. 
But the thing was, you found your sobriety and immediately you were dealing with the stress from your son's issues and his addictions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you, your normal behavior pattern, like we talked about, your routine was to say, well, you know what? I'm a drink. Uh, this is the best. But because of your love for your son, you had to say no. That's where you draw your personal line, right? Right. Where you right. said, okay, I have to stay sober because it will be a nightmare while he's going through this for me to go through this. And that was tough for you. When I, when I was listening to your story and going through it and putting myself in your shoes, you had to make a real decision. And you described that as a catalyst, kind of like the point where your kids was the most instrumental part of your recovery, right? Is that how that whole thing happened? Yeah, I mean, I was at a place, thank thank God, where I was, I had enough clarity to be able to see it because what happened with me is that I was in this very deep denial as most people are. And a big reason why I was in such deep denial is because I was always someone who was able to hold down a job, never missed work, um, didn't experience a lot of the things relative to my, my addiction that I generally heard in the rooms. You know, I heard people sharing that just didn't apply to me. I had a family who would be, who are big drinkers who were telling me you're fine, you know, like, cause they didn't see me at home by myself, Mm -hmm. you know, in my bedroom in in the, the, the pit of self pity with, you know, my drink. And, um, and so the DUI, the driving the wrong way down the turnpike right. in a brownout, right. I call it a brownout because yes. I remember bits and pieces of yes. it. That was the beginning. So that was, I was on probation. Um, I wasn't mandated to AA, but I couldn't stop drinking. So I decided to go to AA so that I could get through my probation period and not go back to jail because I wound up you know, going to jail overnight. And I was committed to nine months. As soon as I'm off probation, as soon as the blower's out of my car, then I'm, I'm, this is the only way I know how to live my life. I can't survive because my son was very, you know, very deep into his addiction at that point. And we were just feeding off of each other. The more he got into trouble, the more I drank over it. And then when I stopped, he got worse. And that's what happens a lot of times when you're in a family where you have two people who are struggling is that as one person gets better, the other person will get worse. And so he got worse. And so by the time the nine months were up and I had said to myself, KJ, you have to be here for nine months. So why not just do what they tell you to do? Just work the steps, just do the program. You know, you have to be here anyway. So let me just do the best that I can. And I did that. And, and as every, you know, the avalanche was occurring and all these things were happening and my son was getting arrested and just a lot of, a lot of craziness. I hit the nine month mark. I'm off probation. The blower's out of my car. I no longer have any accountability, you know, And my son was worse than he had ever been before. And I just knew at that point in time that if I were to pick up a drink, that he would never have a chance of recovery. Mm. It just wasn't going to happen. How how could I set an example? And I also had enough time at nine months where I was able to look back and see that I was able to get through 
all of these really difficult experiences and circumstances and not have to pick up a drink to do it. So yes. I'm starting to see a little bit of the results, you know, yes. of working the steps and being able to get stronger in my sobriety at mm -hmm. nine months. So that's beautiful at nine months. And, um, and it, I know it took a lot. You mentioned um, a period of time when you was going to AA and you realized that you was bringing the issues or uh, your fam family issues to the AA. Yeah. And you talked mm -hmm. about, you know, looking out the corner of your eyes and seeing one of the members go, oh, you know, and hit this person go again with the story. But that's when you found the importance of Al-Anon, right? right? And the family support. Can you talk? Right. So that's a subject that I have yet to really cover. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm mainly because I never had to deal, I had never had to go. Um, but it's so important because mm -hmm. I was your son in the story, in my personal mm -hmm. story and my whole family, everyone pretty much was able to deal with every, with, I was in the functional and I wasn't like you where I could go to work and stuff. It got to a point when it was bad, where I just couldn't do anything. I was just stuck. Mm -hmm. and, right. and I was problematic and stuff. And I wish my family, I could go back in time and take my family to Al-Anon to give them some yeah. insight. But can you, like, well, how did that affect you? What did you learn from there? I know it's a little bit anonymous, but any, just the overall theme, how did that help oh, you yeah. help your son? Well, first of all, um, I'm personally non-anonymous. <laughs> no, okay, I'm okay. not somebody okay. that, you know, I live my recovery out loud, and that's just my personal choice. Oh, there we go, yes. Do that, you know, okay. because I want to you know, reach as many people as I possibly can so that they don't have to suffer, That's um, right. you know, any further than absolutely necessary. But with, you know, what's interesting is my son and I have had this conversation where he has said to me, mom, like, how come like you were able to drink and drug for, you know, because there's drugs in my story here and there. And he's like, how come you were able to do it for like so long? But my son was different from the moment he put a substance in his substance in his body. There was no working. There was no going to school. There was nothing. He could not accomplish anything. So it, to me, that just goes to show the, the um, genetic factor that comes right. into play. I think yes. when you're significantly genetically predisposed and there's also yes. trauma issues. So that's just, you know, uh, interesting aspect of the difference between the two of us. But I can tell you also that for anybody out there who is experiencing just intense emotion, I cried at every single every single day yes. of the first probably year of my recovery, I cried at every single meeting. And of course, everything was about my son, my son, you know, like in my mind and a lot of people's mind, this is very typical of when you're in the early recovery phases, it's not my fault. It's everybody else's fault. You know, if my son would just get sober, if this hadn't happened, if that hadn't happened, blah, blah, blah. So, I, you know, then of course came the instance that you're referring to where, you know, I looked over, I'm crying once again, this guy's like rolling his eyes at me, <laughs> like here she goes again, the waterworks, you know, <laughs> yeah. and after pretty much almost every single meeting, people would come up to me at the end of the meeting and they would say, KJ, because I was talking about my son they yes. and his addiction, you really need to go to Al-Anon. And I was so overwhelmed, Pop, with just i'm a single mother at this point right i have two right. sons and i'm 
holding down a full-time job. I'm taking care of two kids with no help from anyone else. And my son is in active addiction. And I'm going to meetings every single day as a part of my recovery. And I'm overwhelmed. And they're telling me, you have to do something else now on top of like everything else right. that you're doing. And I'm going, no, no, I'm done. Like, I, like you put one more card on my deck, people, and it's going to collapse. So I resisted and I resisted and sure enough, as, as it goes, until we are in enough pain, right? right. We're not going to change until we're in enough pain where the pain to change is less than the pain to stay the same. If I said that correctly. Yes. Yes. So I finally got to that point where I was in enough pain that I said, okay, I'm going to go to an Al-Anon meeting. And what I did is I scheduled one Al-Anon meeting a week and Al-Anon really contributed to saving my son's life because it taught me the things that I was doing that were contributing to making it easier for him to use, contributing to potential relapse because of the volatility and the way in which I was responding to him. And I started to make changes and I, you know, wouldn't allow him to use in the house anymore. I just started to make changes that even like, you know, a couple of changes that made a huge difference and a huge impact. But I'll tell you, those are really hard things to do as a family member, especially as a parent. I mean, I think it's hard no matter who you are, like husband, wife, adult child, whatever it is. But as a mother, for me, you know, watching my son slowly killing himself was far more painful than anything I was going, you know, I was experienced relative to my own addiction and the guilt, you know, feeling responsible. Like I, you know, they say in Al-Anon, you don't cause it, you can't cure it and you can't control it. Well, I can tell you, I didn't buy into the like, didn't cause it part. I felt very responsible. And I think a lot of parents feel this way. And, and learning though, that I can contribute in ways that I'm not necessarily seeing. And they helped me to see the ways in which I was contributing. And I had to make decisions that were some of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make but that I can say without a doubt that they saved, not only saved my son's life, but he is, he is like so much better as a result of his recovery process. We both are, yes. we're both stronger than I believe we ever would have if we hadn't been through that experience. Yes. And I know that's really hard for people to wrap their brains around who are maybe like struggling or, you know, in early recovery or active addiction, but it absolutely is a fact. And I know many other people who have experienced the same. Yes, yes. Um, there was a period where you, the, uh, initially when you first had to exercise the tough love and you had to kind of like, you gave your son some options, but this happened, this just happens a lot where um, our loved ones would feel like probably betrayed a bit, but there was a time where your son went missing and I did, it was a period, it was felt like a month and you didn't know what happened, right? So it was kind of like a nail biter when I was listening to your story because I was mm-hmm. like, oh man, and, and during that period, you actually went through a grieving process and mm-hmm. you had to go through and you're doing all of this. This is initially early in your recovery. Right. Yeah. And I, um, did, was that 
time away part of his healing journey and for people or sometimes did you notice was that a good move yeah yes it was a good move but yet i i, I would caution because i was 14 months sober at the time so um you know, I was gaining more strength in, in my recovery, but that is something that um, was one of the most painful experiences of my entire life. Because I did, you know, I think the biggest fear as a family member when you turn your loved one away, so to speak, you know, um, when you tell them, you know what, you can't live here anymore. We've tried everything. And it's not like, you know, oh, uh, you can't live here anymore. It was like, let me help you. Please let me take you to treatment. And having okay. that person say, no, I'm okay. not going, you know? Okay. And then, you know, so it wasn't just like, oh, you, you gotta go, you can't live here anymore. It's, you need help. Please let me help you. You're dying, you're killing yes. yourself. Correct. And him saying, no, you know, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm fine. When you see, you know, yes. that there clearly isn't. And so I, you know, uh, I had done a few of what I would call the soft kick out, you know, where yes. I would get so frustrated with the situation because I had the boundary of you cannot drink or use in this house and finding out that he was, and then, you know, he would storm out and go couch surfing at his friend's houses. And I mean, he was 19 years old at this time, at yes. this point. Yes. And then he would, you know, call up and say, mom, I'll go to NA, I'll go to AA, I'll do whatever you want. Let me come home. And I would cave. Yes. I actually filed three Marchman acts in the state of Florida, two of them. Um, he convinced me that he was, you know, going to stay sober. So two of them I, I you know, didn't follow through with. And then the third one I did after um, I was able to find him when he disappeared. But when it was that final time, was a situation where I got a call from my younger son who was very young at the time. He was, um, they're six years apart. So he was uh, 12 at the time and he was coming home from middle school and he walked in to his brother in the process yeah. of, you know, injecting and called me distraught at work. And something just snapped in me and, and I, you know, went home and he wasn't home. He had left and I packed everything in his room into these big black garbage bags and I put them outside the house and I sat there in my kitchen and I waited for him to come home and he came home and he was high. And I, I said to him, please, please let me take you to treatment because you, we just can't do this anymore. And no, 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 no. And I'm like, okay, you can't live here anymore. He packs the stuff in his car. He leaves, disappears off the face of the planet. Like we live in a town where, you know, we know a lot of people. And I was convinced after not hearing from him for a month, the longest I had ever, he had yes. ever gone without communicating with me. And, and as a parent, it's that fear. I even said when I called up my supports after he left and I like, you know, totally collapsed, I called up my supports and they said to me, I said, what if I just killed him? What if he, what if he overdoses? Yes. What, what if, what if, what if? Yes. And that's the big fear. And so I would recommend to other families that you don't, that you use a 
um, an intervention where you have more support, where you have, because it was just me, you know, and even though I had some strength in my recovery, there's strength in numbers. And that's why interventions are so powerful and so successful because it's not one person pitted against another person. It's the entire, you know, family, friends that are the loved ones that are surrounding this person and saying, listen, we all are worried about you. We all think you have a problem. And so that's a safer way to go about it. I just happen to be, uh, I feel very blessed that he did not in fact die, but I thought he had. And I went through this grieving process that really took me, it, it, it is what is um, resulted. And I tell him this all the time, like my relationship with you know, God, my definition of, of God, my higher power um, is because of that experience. Like I have a healthy relationship with self. I have this powerful relationship with self and with God because of that experience. So, um, you know, I won't go into that. I don't want to take up too much time. I won't go into, I talk about it, I think in my story on, yeah. in my video, but it was, you know, I was, I just, you know, um, totally collapsed and cried out to God. And uh, the next morning is when my sponsor at the time found my son. Wow. No, I didn't get that far. Thank you. I needed that. You just, I was trying yeah. to get, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I totally just, you know, collapsed on my bedroom floor. I put my head to the floor and I cried out to God and I said, God, if, and, and this is the key point for me is that I completely surrendered pop. I said, cause my one reservation always, always was God. If anything happens to my kids, all bets, all bets are off. Are off. Mm -hmm. All bets are off. That's I don't know it. if I can get through that. And I said to God, God, if he died and somebody else may live because they learn from this death, then maybe I can kind of wrap my head around this and I can get it, but I can promise you, I just want to know where he is. And if you tell me where he is, I'm not going to drink. I can promise wow. you that I'm not wow. going to drink. And I, I went to bed that night and I slept better than I had slept my entire 14 months of sobriety with such peace. It was unbelievable. I wake up to the very first call my cell phone on my nightstand is my sponsor saying she just found him sleeping at a Barnes and Noble. Wow. And so wow. I have, the, that's, that's my burning bush. That's like that. it. We all have one. We that's all have it. one. That's and my burning bush. I, I would say this um, doc is that for me, St. Is that vital experience, that spiritual experience? Dr. Carl Jung called it spiritus contra spiritum. Yeah. It's that that final point of some miraculous creative miracle could bring you to some form of peace. And for me, I did I got on my knees in the middle of the street and cried out to God and said, I don't, I'm trapped, I'm stuck, I'm I'm in the darkest place ever. The devil has me. And now I do believe in you, but I'm totally surrendering. And if you could get me out of this, it was always a pretense. If you could get me out of this, God, I promise you, I'd never go back. I'll never drink again. And at the time, I couldn't even believe that I had the ability. I was so far gone. 
And when I say within 24 hours from that point, I was sleeping in a, a sober house or no, I was in detox after that. And that was the beginning of the sober is dope story. And, and that was, I was like, Whoa, God, I, I love God, but I was like, this really works. And it was so incredible. So that brings me to um, pow- peace to power, powerless to powerful. That's the theme of a lot of your work. Can you, that, that power, go from peace to power, powerless to powerful. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about that briefly? Sure, sure. So I am someone who does not buy into this concept that we are forever powerless, okay? Okay. And I know that that is very controversial with a lot of people, but it's based upon spirituality and spiritual practice. So what I, if, if you look at the map of consciousness, which is, it is um, something that was created by Dr. David Hawkins based upon his research in the book, Power Versus Force. And it's all about how our thoughts, perceptions, feelings, actions, have energy attached to them. And so he did this research on um, what's called behavioral kinesiology. And, And so, you know, that's the idea that the way that we think, feel, and behave can, like how stress can impact disease within the body. So this idea that if you look at the map of consciousness, when we are weak, when we are in at our weakest, that we're down in an area of shame, despair, hopelessness, anger, fear, resentment. And when we're in that mindset of, of that place, we're in what I refer to as the swamp. And that's a powerless place because it deprives us of all of our energy. So when I'm in those negative thoughts, perceptions, feelings, negative actions, they're contributing to depleting me of my power and my strength. So what happened with me personally is with my alcoholism and drinking and being in this negative, you know, angry, resentful based on trauma and negative circumstances and despair and hopelessness and I'm living in this swamp, then I, it's the alcohol is just taking me further and further and further into powerlessness, mm-hmm. right? Because it takes over everything. So then recovery, in my opinion, is this um, path to going from powerless to powerful. So in the map of consciousness, he shows how when we're living in this area of hope, courage, compassion, love, kindness, service, all of that gives us energy and power. And so sometimes we are in such a state of despair that only a spiritual experience can help mm. elevate us up into courage, you know, willingness, no, forgiveness, mean. those areas. And that otherwise, aside from like a, a, a you know, big dramatic uh, spiritual experience, that if we have a guide that helps to get us there, like we generally can't get out of the swamp all by ourselves. We need help for somebody to help elevate. And that's why the 12 steps are so beautiful because the 12 steps are a way out of the swamp. And we have a guide that helps to get us out of the swamp into service, into forgiveness, out of resentment, 
And Dr. Hawkins talks about that in his book about how 12-step recovery, you know, serves this purpose of getting us from these low energy, powerless state to strength and power. And so that's why I say I'm in a position of strength and really more powerful than I've ever been before because of knowing how dangerous it is to be in anger, resentment, fear, despair. You know, it's not like we never experienced that. What I've learned is it's not about not feeling that, not experiencing that. It's about recognizing it and then moving out of it as quickly as I possibly can because I don't want it to deplete me of my strength and power. So that's where I say being aware of our power differential. You know, you could look at it like a lot of people say, where's your spiritual tank? Is your spiritual tank on empty or is your spiritual tank, you know, full? And, and there's more, there, there's more reality in that than people I think understand that, that there's a way, you know, there's specific ways of going from powerless to powerful. Does that make sense? That makes absolute perfect sense. And I'm right there with you. I had to get rid of the negative beliefs, the negative mind chatter. The, I had to watch my internal dialogue, what I said to myself. I had to realize that my perception of my environment affects my internal environment had to raise my vibration so that brings me to my next thing i use meditation as one of my ways of really staying in a a consciousness state that brings me home into a place of peace can you talk to us about mindfulness meditation and how you use that in your practice Sure. Mindfulness meditation, meditation in general, whether it's mindfulness meditation or like transcendental meditation, it depends. There, there are some people where mindfulness meditation might be um, contraindicated because it could, if you have a tendency to disassociate or just there are certain personality types where doing more of the clearing of the mind is is more beneficial than focusing because mindfulness is different than traditional meditation in that traditional meditation is about just calming the mind. So if you think about like a snow globe, did you ever have a snow globe? Right. So you shake up the snow globe and then you wait for the snow to drift down and then you can see the picture, the scene more clearly. Yes. So that's, that's what meditation does, right? It helps to take the thoughts and calm them down so we can see more clearly and more rationally and less emotionally. Mindfulness is not the, the, the exact opposite, but it is like focusing more on the snow, like you're focusing on the thoughts. And by focusing on the thoughts non-judgmentally, right? Mm-hmm. Not judging the thoughts, just noticing them. Because the reality is that, Pop, we have between 40 and 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Yes. That's a lot of thinking Correct. that's going on. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're constantly thinking. Even when we're sleeping, we're thinking. We're just not conscious of the thinking. So the, how often do we live our lives and go through our days and not even be conscious of what's going on in our mind? And a lot of what's going on in our mind, especially in in the early phases of recovery, is very negative for the most Mm -hmm. part. And so mindfulness will help to identify that. And once you start to identify it, once you start to be aware of what you're thinking about and the nature of 
your thinking, you can then start to learn how to redirect. So for me, someone who experienced tremendous anxiety in early recovery, this was a huge turning point for me. I remember reading The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Yes. And, and um, him suggesting somewhere in the book that you take this time, like take a 24 hour period and just be really aware of what's going on in your mind. And I noticed the first day I started to do that, that I had gotten up for work and I went to go take a shower to get ready for work. By the time I got out of the shower, I was in a full-blown anxiety attack and nothing had happened. Like mm. nothing had changed in my environment. It was all about what was going on in my mind mm. that was creating this tremendous anxiety. So for me, what helped is, and still helps to this day, mantras, yes, positive affirmations Great, to, yeah. to interrupt the tapes. You know, I'm sure you've heard yes. of the um, reference to these tapes. Yes. We have these tapes that run in our heads based upon family of origin, childhood yeah. issues. Yeah, or programming. Or, yeah, programming, domestication, as yeah. Don Miguel Ruiz likes to refer to it. <laughs> we become domesticated. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes through that domestication, we take on these negative core beliefs and these negative tapes that play through our minds over and over again in response to certain situations. So it's learning how to identify those when they're happening and interrupt the tape. Yes. It's like, you know, you're creating new neural pathways. Yes. You're like trying to get that old neural pathway to, you know, uh, close up and create this new neural pathway. So I used mantras like one of my favorites was, I am a magnet. I am a magnet mm. for, you know, abundance, prosperity, success. Yeah, I like know? that. Um, yeah. And, or in the very beginning, it was, I am calm and confident because I felt very fearful and I felt very insecure about like my abilities for things. So I would say, I'm calm and I'm confident. And I would say it over and over again, just to stop the tape so That's... that it would stop running in my head. Yes. I used to use um, a saying and um, my family always laugh because they say I didn't invent this. It sounds too generic, but it's never too late to be amazing. Right. Yes, and I used to repeat that. To, thank you. I used to repeat that to myself because I had this fear that I wasted too much time and then I wouldn't be as important or I wouldn't be incredible or amazing. Or I wouldn't have fulfilled yeah. or realize my dreams anymore because mm -hmm. of these dark four years out of my whole life as somehow that would negatively ruin the rest of my years. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, but it's never too late. And I think that helps people that are still in addiction because it gives them yeah. a point of reference, a hope like, wait, it's not too late. You know, you could rebuild your family. You know, you could get back to finances, get back to love or find new love, right? Yeah. It's always these, uh, to be optimistic and bright. Um, Doc, you know, everything that you're doing and everything that we spoke about is going to help so many people. And this is one of the oldest and greatest works, um, really speaking to the person that's in addiction, that darkness. And you mentioned that we both know it so well that mm -hmm. we could go back and say that darkness 
business where we were so disconnected and we didn't, and in your son's case, who was just like me, yes, I really, every time I listen to your son's story, tell him he's not alone. I love him. Hope to meet yeah. him one day. Yeah. Just like me. I remember, I just, just, and he's amazing because he did it at such a young age that, mm-hmm. you know, all of that coverage and strength and he's going to be a pillar for so many people because he had to do it in a time where we was fighting corporate interests and the, the medical industry and the pain right. management and the opioid crisis. It was crazy. And we know right. that. And many of the kids didn't make it out. And, you know, many right. of my friends didn't make it. Um, and so you, your son is a testament to that. And taking back power, being take going from a victim mindset to victorious mindset. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got from you today, how we could transform yeah. that sacred transformation, Doc. So yeah. thank you so much. In closing, any advice you could give to anyone out there that's struggling with addiction on whether it's behavior addiction, process addiction, substance use addiction, and um, any closing remarks? Well, just that I, I believe that there are really three critical elements to recovery, and that is making sure that you, I, you find someone who can help guide you, you know, someone who has achieved what you are seeking to achieve. When, when we talk about success in any area, whether that's addiction recovery, whether that's in any career choice, whatever it is, you find someone who has achieved what you're seeking to achieve and follow their blueprint do what they do what they did and you'll get what they got so having that mentor having a support group surrounding yourself with other people who are on the same path who are who have achieved you know what you're seeking to achieve and and you know utilizing them utilizing that support group and then also the spiritual practice like learning, you know, practicing the mindful med- meditation, you know, practicing the spiritual principles of helping other people right away. You know, people will say to me, I had somebody say to me today in, in my, my uh, daily meeting, he said, you know, I just don't think that I have anything to offer anybody right now. And I just need to wait until I feel better. And then I'll start trying to help other people. I was like, no, mm-hmm. like that's backwards. You start helping people today and you're going to start to feel better as a result of helping those people. So that's just one example of spiritual practice. So, you know, and just trust the process, just keep going, even if it's painful, because there's going to be pain. Like there is no recovery. There's no successful recovery without pain involved. And so just, you know, trust the process, keep moving forward and have those three critical elements and you're, you're, you know, on your way to success. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from Dr. KJ Forster herself. Doc, thank you so much. Thank you. I I love your work. I love your story. And I'm glad to be your friend and call you a friend and a friend of the community. God bless you. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap for our episode, Fostering Fostering Resilience with Dr. KJ Foster. You're listening to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan. I love you all, and I'll catch you on the other side.
not rude. It isn't self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You see, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Love is everlasting. It's eternal. It goes on and on. It goes beyond time. Love is the only thing that will last when you die. Well, ask the question, why do you have love? Sins, my sins, that is love. He died for you and me while we still hated. 